You're listening to Zentertainment Talk Radio on the web at zentertainment.org. My name is Joe Davidson. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest today is George Fowler. He's the co-author of the book Sacred Stress. George spent 20 years as a New York City firefighter and a police officer, and he's now a counselor, helping many people turn post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth. You can find out more at sacredstress.com. In his book, he said something that I thought was really funny. He wrote that God has a funny sense of humor. If he had to pick an ambassador to spread a message about the importance of vulnerability and emotional connection, you would want someone with the right credentials. Instead, God chose an emotionally constricted New York City firefighter of Irish descent who often mispronounces words and resists crying and expressing feelings. (laughs) Hi, George. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Joe. I just wondered if you could go back 25 years ago, did you ever imagine you would be counseling people? Absolutely not. At the time I grew up even go earlier than that, I never even knew of a, of a therapist. So it was never my dream to grow up and become a therapist. So mm-hmm. it's ironic. I, I grew up with the old definition of vulnerability, which is being open to weakness or attack. So it's not something I wanted to sign up for. And a lot of people really don't look for, you know, as don't see vulnerability as a good thing. Yeah, Brene Brown has done so much work to bring awareness to the, the strength of vulnerability and the, the importance of it in connection. Absolutely, and that's what we're trying to do with stress, to expand the conversation. You know, you started off your book writing about 9-11. I wonder if we could just go back to that for a minute. Um, I was interested in reading your experience. I'm sure everybody who gets the book will be, um, because you were so up close and so in the middle of it. I was actually um, downtown on that day as well, but not. my experience was nothing like yours. I saw the World Trade Center from my window. I had a great view of it. I wondered if you could share just a little bit about what you went through and then what you saw happening around you in the next weeks, months, and even years in terms of um, the physical and emotional responses people had and and how that affected people. Right. Certainly it was the worst of times. For me, it was it was like nothing I've ever seen before. Although we have a lot of experience with death and trauma, you know, on that magnitude, it was, uh, you know, I'll never forget going down there. It was a sight I've never seen with all the twisted steel and smoke and dust, and you couldn't see anything. And and a, a fire emergency setting is typically what we call controlled chaos. I mean, it's there's a lot going on, but there's there's this leadership that's really grounded, and you have this sense of everything's going to be okay and that day didn't have that. I mean, the New York City Fire Department lost 343 firefighters, which is the largest single loss of life at one time in the history of the world. So we lost so many of the leaders, and it was just, it wasn't controlled chaos. It was just chaos. And, you know, so, and I didn't know, I, a lot of my friends were missing, and people, I have two brothers on a job. So it was just, it was, it was a horrible first day. And if you would have told me then that, you know, something good would come out of it i would probably punch you in the face mm-hmm. you know there's it it nothing that i could see and uh mm-hmm. but as as the days and we just were down there 24 7 would just uh, you know pass by you started to see uh, you know different different things and i started really to see the best in humanity during those days i mean you'd be going down there and people would be cheering and then it didn't matter color, race, religion. I mean, there was a, a unity in, in, in a people that I've never seen or, or since then. 
most people know about the negative consequences of trauma. Most people don't even know about post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress disorder. There are a lot of people that trauma becomes a turning point in their lives where they find more meaning, where their relationships become more important, where they grow for the better, and it's all come from the impetus of that trauma. So I think that's the key to rewriting a story. It's trying to get people to, to – most people, when they have a trauma, don't want to deal with it. Right? They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be reminded. But it's the avoidance of trauma that actually makes it never heal and becomes, you know, it kind of grows and it festers. So it's counterintuitive, but that's really the focus of what therapy is trying to do in a safe setting, trying to get people to approach something that their body wants to retreat from. And once they can approach it, they can start to make sense of it. They can start to kind of make more meaning. They can create this new story that allows them to 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 like themselves in the in the in the parts of the story that where they actually have some control and they can do things differently. Most people, when they're trying to avoid a topic, it it triggers them during a day when they're not thinking about it. You know, they can listen to a song or they can hear a noise and their body's right back there again. I think being so intentional, saying during this hour, I'm going to go back, I'm going to choose to go back, starts to give people some more control over this really helpless situation. And I think that's, that's really critical. In your book, Sacred Stress, well, first off, the title, we don't usually think of stress as sacred, but it's an interesting way of, of viewing it. And you wrote about distress versus eustress. Eustress is positive stress. It's, it's the stress we all need in our lives to grow. Organisms, systems that don't get stressed, that don't change the feedback, die. They stagnate. So we all need stress is absolutely necessary and healthy. So if you think of the greatest moments in your life, your first kiss, your first, mm-hmm. you know, they, they all involve stress, but it was a stress that pushed us to kind of grow and to kind of achieve. So you stress is just that necessary stress in all our lives. And it's sad that our culture has gotten so far away that when we bring up the word stress, all we think about is really distress, which is this negative stress response yeah. where we get stuck in this fight-or-flight response, which is supposed to be a temporary response, and yet we're in this culture we live in, people are getting stuck in that response 24 hours a day. I mean, imagine being chased by a lion. You're supposed to just move quick so you can get out of the way or you get eaten, but we're being chased by this lion 24 hours a day, right? We train our body to see the opportunity in the stress you know, a chance to be part of a team to kind of help. And, and that, that, that reframe on how you see it actually allows your body to be calm under the stress instead of having this fight-or-flight response. I like how you wrote about listening to emotions. Fear requires soothing. Sadness wants comfort. Anger needs to be listened to. Helplessness longs for some control. Hopelessness desires some hope. Clarifying and communicating our needs as necessary to transform distress into eustress. And I just love this line so much. The antidote to the chaos, isolation, and fragmentation of trauma is connection. It's really all about connection, isn't it? That's, if I could take one sentence out of the book, there it is. And most people don't realize that during a stress response actually oxytocin which is the love the bonding hormone is also released with adrenaline we are meant to deal with our stress in relationship not to deal with stress alone and what's so sad we see in our culture is most people are being taught how to deal with stress by themselves which is not the best way of handling it and another thing that I think if you talk about God having a sense of humor you know you get people together and partners and one of them 
usually the woman reacts to stress. I'm being very stereotypical here, but might react to stress by tending and befriending. And sometimes the man reacts to stress by withdrawing. So they're actually doing the opposite things from what each other needs. How do you work with couples who have these opposite reactions to stress so that they get closer instead of farther apart? Well, you start with giving Bolton and permission for the good reasons. They're just trying to survive and do what has worked for them. And you're trying to get them to expand to see the very thing that they're doing that's working for them is probably the worst thing for, the, for their partner. You know, most couples think they got divorced over the laundry list, the kids, sex, money. But really what they got divorced over is the distance that developed in their emotional bond. It got harder and harder for them to connect and to feel safe with each other. And more and more mistrust and distance grew in their relationship. And that's why if you start to become somebody you're not when you kind of perpetually find yourself stuck in anger or withdrawal and you get less and less of the good stuff that we're all looking for in relationships so we really want it it's key to get a couple to see the good reasons they miss each other and how this distance is inevitable but really if we can empower a couple to be able to repair the distance to head towards each other with these fears the beauty of an emotion is it's just a signal it's communicating we need something if we listen to the signal it tells us what we need to heal so that's really what we're trying to get couples to do is listen to the wisdom that's already within them and get them to share that with each other. And then that very fight becomes the doorway into that vulnerability and deeper connection. If I wanted to go to the giant game tonight and me and my wife are in a good place, she says, go to the giant game, have a great time. You know, you work so hard. If me and my wife are in a bad place. She says, why are you going? You work too much. And it turns into a fight. It's really not about the giant game. Yeah. It's about the state of our relationship. And to really pay attention to that, we have to pay attention to these emotional signals. And most of us have been taught, you know, not to do that. And therapists are as guilty. We're human, too. Yeah. You know, there's research out there that says 90% of the time when we try to give advice, it's misattuned. It's not effective. Only 10% of the time is advice what actually somebody wants. And yet that's the number one tool that most people turn to. They want to fix things. They want to tell people, you know, what they should do or should not do. And it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge the emotional signal that tends to be present in that moment. You said in your book, okay, so you talked about doing something called EFT and um, you say emotionally focused therapy. Is that different than the EFT tapping technique or is that the same thing? No, it is different. Um, it's funny that they both have the same name, and I think they get to similar places. But emotionally focused therapy is the, is the modality that I'm training. It's, it, it is the most evidence-based couples therapy in the world. And what it's trying to do is to get couples to not only understand what they're doing, these cycles that they fall into that are not working, but more importantly, to replace them with cycles that are. So you're really trying to turn disconnection into connection. I want to learn more about this, and I'm sure many of our listeners do. Where can they find out more? Um, you can go to www.nyceft.org. That's, uh, that's our organization in New York that will give a lot of information. So when we're caught in that, that sort of trap, that negativity that's breeding more negativity, what have you learned that you can do quickly to kind of break that? So I always remind myself of the good old Irish saying, everybody focuses on the drinking and not the thirst. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to pay attention to what drives us to do these things that we know are not so helpful for us. And I think the sad thing is, you know, we're all overworked and, and we're tired. So we look for these little ways to escape the pressure and the weight and the heaviness. And a lot of times, you know, that having that ice cream or watching TV or these, these things we do to cope to kind of reduce a little bit of this pressure. 
then afterwards, although it feels a little bit better, then we feel so horrible about ourselves that we don't have compassion, but we have all this self-criticism and shame, which just spirals us even further down, and then we don't want to let people into it and see it, so right. we, we stay alone with it, and it just becomes this feedback loop that just leads to, to a vortex of negativity. So I remind myself all the time when I'm starting to, to just notice it, which is the key part. You have to be able to name it. Then I could reach out and let somebody in, and I could tell my wife, hey, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit bummed out. And, you know, it's amazing what connection does to reduce the negative impact of stress, even if we don't have answers. And I saw this after 9-11. We, we didn't have answers. You couldn't fix a lot of things. But to be in it together, to be in a hole together with somebody is experienced very differently than being a hole by yourself. You know, so we don't have to be experts, but we have to allow our hearts to be impacted by someone else's story. And I think that's really what we can do best for each other as human beings is just come alongside and be with. I was thinking about attachment. Um, I saw this video. I was actually looking on your website, and a woman was talking about it. I didn't catch her name, but she was talking about the power of attachment, um, not in a negative way, a positive way. You know, we're made for emotional bonds and attachment. But it also creates a feeling of safety in the brain. I, I think we just all have to remind each other that that longing to be in relationship is with us from the moment of our first breath to our last breath. You know, we get away from our, our DNA, which is this longing to be in relationships. So for people that are isolated, you know, I think they have to do a better job of giving themselves permission for wanting to have people around them. Because so often we just accept our faith and say, hey, this is just the way it is, and, and we suffer silently. You know, we, we're made with emotions that protest for a reason because they're trying to say, hey, there's a problem here, we need to fix it. You know, and hopefully the people around can hear that protest or that, that, that bid for connection and respond because the worst thing we can do is to not respond to each other and just to foster that, that sense of separation and, and disconnection. We all get stuck in patterns of uh, reacting and responding to circumstances of our lives, and sometimes we think there's no other option when there really is. It's just that we're on this sort of neural pathway, this this track where we've always done it this way, and we're not even aware consciously that we're you know responding the same way over and over again. Exactly, and that's why we live in such exciting times where the science is, it can look real time in a brain, like what is happening in relationship. And if you look at a little baby's brain, it learns about its own value, value and lovableness reflected back. We learn about our feelings secondhand. This emotional exchange is critical. It's as important as, as food and, and breathing is. So when we, you start to give people permission, you actually empower them to, to be okay with their longings. The biggest problem that I see is most people are ashamed of their longings. You know, we, we we're taught a codependency and it's weak and we shouldn't need. And somehow we're supposed to be able to be separate and be okay with it. And, you know, the research is so clear that it's when we feel safe in relationships, we can actually be more independent and, and differentiate and to separate because we know we can always come back to that secure base. That's the natural process. And we got the order out of whack. Yeah. Most people think they got to be secure on their own and then they can do good in relationships. And that's just not the way the brain grows. Nothing grows the brain like love. <laughs> that's a good line. That's so true. Nothing grows the brain like love. That's awesome. The science is becoming clear on what works, and yet our, our culture and societies get more and more isolated, more and more alone, more and more depressed. 
So we really need help. This is a mission for me to kind of educate people to listen to the wisdom within them, and it will point us in the right direction. But so we keep so busy, we don't even listen to ourselves. Stressed, spelled backwards, is what? I know, I know. Believe me, because I like the All right. <laughs> How good is that? So there's God's sense of humor again. That's there's right. something beautiful in this. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. A great book, um, georgefowler.com, Sacred Stress, a radically different approach to using life's challenges for positive change. I'll talk with you soon. Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks, bye. Bye-bye.